So today we're starting a new series um, about Advent, and we're looking at Advent and the Christmas season through each of the lenses of the gospel writers. So today we're going to talk about Matthew's version of the nativity story. And I don't know if you've actually read through each version of the story in each of the gospels, but they are different. And sometimes I think we, we do something called we do the mush gospel, where we mush all of the stories of Advent together into one narrative. And it's not necessarily all our fault that we've done this. There's uh, a lot of factors that go into this, uh, like paintings that have mushed everybody together at, at the nativity story. Um, if you go past a church that has a, a scene out in front of their church, or even just someone's home, there's a lot more characters there than are present in each of the gospel stories. So we're going to see as we go through Matthew that there's things omitted that maybe Luke has, or maybe Mark has, or maybe John has, or, or maybe there's a version in one of the gospels that doesn't have anything about Jesus' birth. And so it's going to be interesting as we go through this what we've, what we've mushed together in our brain versus what is accurate. So um, what do you remember about the nativity story? And more importantly, which story are you remembering? because the Charlie Brown version is different from maybe Matthew's version. So let's watch a quick video about um, some kids talking about what Advent looks like to them, or Christmas looks like to them. An angel came to see Mary. She was doing laundry, and then the angel just appeared and she was really scared. So Gabriel was like, Mary, you're gonna have, what? Mary, you're gonna have a baby. I, you're gonna have a baby, and you will call him Jesus. And then Mary was like, I'm not gonna have a baby yet. I'm only a teenager. I'm not married. Then the angel Gabriel told Joseph that Mary is not lying. She, you are having a new baby. And so they met up. They went to Bethlehem. Ham, which was Joseph's old town. They ride a donkey. <laughs> I don't know. A camel. Oh yeah, a camel. She said, this donkey's fast. Well, they tried to go to a hotel and they asked the keeper um, for a place to stay. The keeper said, we have no rooms. Literally, no rooms. <laughs> so Mary and Joseph walked away sadly, but then he said, the only place and here in Bethlehem, that that you can stay stay is a staple. And then he just pointed the way, and they followed. When the shepherds were taking care of the sheep, and then they saw angels. The angels said, "A new baby is getting born, who is king of the Jews." The angel were singing. And then the shepherd said, I think we should go there and meet him. The second, I think, said, yeah, I agree with you. And the other said, yeah, me too. They had to walk through a bunch of grass and bushes, maybe have to camp out a night. And then the wise men heard about it. And then a star appeared. Well, we should probably follow that star. It's pointing down to the barn. So maybe we should follow it. Maybe. So the wise men went to Jesus. They gave them gifts. A stuffed animal, like a hippo one, that I have at home. 
some diapers, and some wipes, and some milk, some shoes, some Jordans. Gold, Frank, and Latimer. And I don't know how I would survive in that barn. Too stinky, too crowded, and ugh. I think he probably pooped because the room was very smelly. Thank you for coming. He's adorable. He's gonna be our best friend. I love you, and you're the best baby I ever seen. There, I said it. <laughs> the new baby is gonna change the world. So that was adorable, and also a good example of the mush gospel, where we mushed all the stories together to form one narrative. Um, I think what happens when we do this, though, we, we lose the, the intentionality behind each gospel writer's story. So we, we spend a lot of time you know, making one big narrative, and Charlie Brown, or Linus, it's not Charlie Brown, that, that tells the story at the end of the Christmas Charlie Brown movie. And his version is mostly out of Luke, but so maybe Larry will show that video when he, when he preaches in a few weeks. But um, what's, what's interesting is we, when we do, when we mush the gospel together into one narrative, we do lose some of that, the, the uniqueness of each version. And I think we forget that the writers in the New Testament were not writing to, to tell us how Jesus was born. They're telling us why Jesus was born. And when we read the Bible, a lot of times we're trying to find, like, this is the literal, exact historical representation of what happened. And really, that's not what he's trying to do. They're, they're telling us why. And we'll get into like, a little bit more of Matthew's purpose here in a minute. Um, but I think that's it's important to remember that it's not about how Jesus was born exactly. Or even like when we look at the Genesis story, it's not about how the world was created or the Revelation story about how the world will end. It's about why are the writers writing this specifically and how, like, how are they putting these pieces together to make this narrative. So um, it's okay, to, I think, for us to think about each story uniquely individually and not have to make it make sense historically like um, you know the wise men had to come at this point and then the shepherds came here and then Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem and then they went to Egypt and when they went over here it looks too too crazy sometimes too big of a narrative but I think if we slim it down and look at just each individual story I think it'll make more sense uh, even though it isn't uh, congruent congruent that's not a word congruent what's the word I'm looking for congruent thank you uh, it's not congruent with each other. Like, they're not the same stories, but they're telling the same story in different ways. Does that make sense? Okay. So let's look at Matthew's purpose. Why did Matthew write this gospel? Why did he write the nativity story? And why did he put it in his narrative about Jesus? Well, he was, he was writing to newly converted Jewish Christians. So it's people who grew up, Christ, grew up Jewish, recently converted to, to Christianity, and he's trying to connect the dots to prove that Jesus is the guy that they were looking for. So there's lots of Jewish references throughout his gospel. In fact, I think there's over 20 um, verses from the Old Testament that Matthew puts into his gospel to say, like, this is what we were looking for. This is the prophecy that we were looking for. Here's how Jesus fulfilled it. There's five verses just in the nativity story about, that's from the Old Testament that show that Jesus is the one they were looking for. So it's, there's a lot of references in and themes and connections to the Old Testament. And we'll see that a lot as we read. I'm gonna keep saying like, this goes back to this Old Testament story because Matthew was proving to his audience, this is what you're looking for. He wouldn't do that if his audience was Greek because they wouldn't know that Old Testament history. So he's proving to a Jewish audience that Jesus has the, the credentials they need and is also the guy that they're looking for. So he's proving that with a lot of Old Testament references through the Torah. 
Um, there's lots of Easter eggs and little hidden references that, that Jewish audiences would have picked up right away. So when, as we go through like, e- looking at even Joseph, Jesus' dad, there's lots of references to the Old Testament Joseph we'll talk about that were intentional. So um, another reason that Matthew wrote is to subvert the expectations of what the Jews were expecting with the Messiah. So when, the, when the, the idea of the Messiah came about in the Old Testament, they were looking for this warrior king that would overthrow the Jewish oppressors. So in this day and age, when Jesus was being born, it was the Romans. And so the Jews were looking for someone to come that was of Jewish descent that would overthrow the Roman Empire. And Jesus didn't do that. He was, a, he was born as a baby, not as a warrior king from the clouds. And he was born in a, in a barn. And so Matthew is taking the expectations that the Jews were looking for and he flipped them upside down while also referencing the Old Testament at the same time to show that this is why Jesus is the guy that we're looking for. Does that make sense? It's kind of, it's heavy, but we'll get there. So what we're going to do, since we have time, since we're not doing any music, we'll read through most of the narrative today. We're not going to read the first part because that's about genealogy and I won't bore you with names. Uh, we'll talk about it, but we'll, we'll read the rest of the narrative together. Okay, so let's keep going here. So w- as we look at the Old Testament, or as we look at Matthew's narrative, we, we, we're looking at how, you know how sometimes in movies like a detective will put all these papers on a board and have like a red string that connects to everything? Matthew's narrative looks like that. Like he's, he's showing us all the time how his story about Jesus connects to the Old Testament and how Jesus is the one they're looking for. So there's going to be lots of like moments where I'll stop and say, here's another you know, red string that's connecting to Jesus. So he's, he's like a movie detective and he's trying to like put all the pieces together to prove to his Jewish audience who Jesus is. Okay? So this is the, the genealogy part of the first part of Matthew's gospel. This is how the book starts in verse 1. And I broke it up in colors. So, so there's blue and there's green and there's pink colors here. And each of them are important. So there's three groups of 14 names in, in the genealogy. So it starts with Abraham, and then it ends in King David. That's the first group of 14. So there's, that's 14 generations. And then there's from King David to when they were exiled in, to Babylon. So that's another 14 generations there. And then there's 14 generations from the exile of Babylon to Joseph, to Jesus' Jesus's dad. And the... the this isn't historically accurate. And so if you look at the, at the genealogies, and even in what's in the Old Testament, it doesn't match up with what Matthew wrote down. But that's on purpose. Remember, this isn't so, supposed to be historically accurate. It's proving a point, which messes with our, our Western brains because we, we have to have things logical and make sense and orderly and historically accurate. But Matthew is proving that, um, that this isn't meant to be accurate. It's meant to, sh- to prove who Jesus is. It's showing his pedigree and his connection to, to Abraham, the, the Jewish like, father. So um, there's, the reason there's groups of 14, because it's seven two times. So we see that it's, um, it's seven two times, but three groups, of, so three groups of 14. Does that make sense? So seven is, is an important number in Jewish history, seven days on the earth. Um, it's in the creation story. And they do that two times to make, to make it make sense because it has to be that many generations of, of time. And then he did that three times, which also is another important number in, the, in, in Christian thought. So he, the, the numbers are important there. So there's a little bit of numerology in how Matthew is making the genealogy make sense. So it's not accurate historically, but it's, it's symbolic, in the, and that's important. 
So the interesting thing about Matthew's genealogy is that it includes women. So has, it, has anyone done any genealogy, like family history stuff in their families? Typically, you follow, you follow like your, your father's name, so you can keep, like I would do, keep doing Fetzer to see the, all the Fetzers throughout history, but Matthew included women, which would not make sense for family names. It would go in a different direction. But the women he chose were important. He chose Ruth, which is an important Jewish figure, Rahab, the prostitute, Bathsheba, the woman that David slept with to have his son Solomon. So all of these were important figures to prove again that Matthew knows, he knows his Jewish history, and Jesus is connected to that history to prove who Jesus was to the Jews that wanted to believe in him. So it's all about, like, this is, this is um, Jesus' resume. This is who he knows and who he's connected with, and all those names are important Jewish figures. So it's, it's all about Jesus' Jewishness. How, how Jewish is Jesus? He's the most Jewish because he's connected to Abraham, he's connected to David, he's connected to... Um, all of these Jewish figures throughout history. So it's kind of like um, proving, through, proving that Jesus is Jewish. Like if you wanted to say that you were the most American person that anyone would know, you'd say that you're related to George Washington, right? It's the same thing. It may not be, it, it may, there may be some history there. Like you could probably dig back far enough maybe to find out, but it's not going to be accurate as you're just saying that you're super American, right? So it's not about accuracy, it's about um, the theology behind it and the importance to the people about that. And that didn't matter to them back then. Historical accuracy didn't matter to the Jewish people back then. It matters to us now, or else that's called plagiarism, but it, doesn't ma- it didn't matter to them. Okay, let's keep going. So let's read through Matthew, the first part of Matthew after the genealogy. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from his dream, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but he had no marital relations with her until she had borne him a son, and he named him Jesus. So there's a few things that I learned studying this this time. There's a few things that I knew ahead of time, some things that I learned today. So Joseph there's a connection between Joseph and Jesus' story and Joseph of the Old Testament. Both of them had dreams. And again, this is one of those things Matthew's doing on purpose. It's about connecting Jesus' story to the Old Testament to prove his Jewishness again. And I'm going to say that probably a lot. Um, Matthew was trying to invoke the, the Joseph that we knew in the Old Testament, the one that had dreams with the fancy coat, because he was a very important figure in Jewish history too. So they both had dreams and he's so Jesus' dad may not have been named Joseph. We don't know. It, it could have been just an, an allegory because we don't hear about Joseph after the birth story ever. And some people think that he died early in Jesus' life. Some people, we don't, we don't know. But the important thing is, is that he, his dad did take him in. So um, in, in back in that day, they didn't have paternity tests to prove whose child is who. You couldn't go on Maury to say, like, you're, you're not the father. But what they did do is 
if, if a man named the child, he claimed him as his son or daughter. So when Joseph named Jesus, he's saying, I'm going to take this baby as my own, even if we don't know if it's true. Because at this point in the story, people are starting to notice that Mary is pregnant. So he did this to, to save her. So there's this honor and shame dynamic that's kind of complicated in the first century where you can shame people and it helps build you honor. So Joseph had every right to, I think in other stories we hear that he could have had her stoned. And in this story, he could have just dismissed her, said like, I don't want anything to do with you. And he could have just, and that would have been shaming for Mary, but it would have protected his honor. But in naming Jesus and taking Jesus as his son, he's kind of shaming himself because he doesn't, we don't know if this is his child, but he's protecting Mary's honor. So Matthew is proving that, that Joseph was a man of, of righteousness, of integrity, by, by not increasing his honor, but increasing Mary's honor through protecting Joseph, or protecting Jesus and Mary. Does that make sense? It's an interesting perspective. So it's, it's complicating that honor-shame dynamic, and this is another example of Matthew flipping that messianic expectations. So throughout Matthew's gospel, specifically, he talks a lot about, a lot about righteousness, and what we think is righteous or what we think is, is, is correct is not, or like culturally, it's not how God sees it. So he's flipping expectations, and we're gonna, we'll see that later on as well. We'll read a verse from the middle of Matthew where it kind of, it kind of keys in the whole righteousness dynamic. Okay, so let's look at Jesus' names because there's two in this story. There's Jesus, which the angel told him to name, and then Matthew throws out this other name from Isaiah, which is Emmanuel, which means God with us. But they didn't name Jesus Emmanuel, they named him Jesus. So why would they even throw that in there at all? They never called him that again. I have a theory that Emmanuel is not a name but a title. So it's meant to be something that shows who Jesus is but isn't the name that was given to him. Does that make sense? Jesus has lots of names throughout the Gospels. There's King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Son of Man. Uh, There's lots of different examples. But I think Emmanuel isn't necessarily a name I think this is Matthew showing again what type, of, um, what type of Messiah Jesus is going to be. So if you look at, the, this is the reference from Matthew um, chapter 1 that we just read where it says Emmanuel. So this is Isaiah 14, or 7, 7, 14, sorry. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. But at the end of Matthew's gospel, the very last verse, Jesus says, to his disciples when he's getting ready to leave and he's doing the Great Commission. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Emmanuel came true by the end of the book of Matthew. That's all intentional. Matthew is priming you at the beginning of the book to say, Jesus is God with us here on earth. And then at the end of the book, Jesus is saying it to prove, I am with you, I will be with you to the end of the age. So it's not necessarily Jesus' name is Emmanuel. It's not his middle name. It wasn't like a nickname. It was a title to prove that Jesus is God with us. And Matthew uses that throughout his whole book and ends it with, I am with you. Do you see the connection there? It's kind of cool. So um, Emmanuel, so it's, it's, it means God is with us. And it's not just some of us, but he's, he, God is with all of us. So it's, Matthew is using this name intentionally and he's using this verse from Isaiah to prove that, that Jesus is the same person that was, the, that was God with Abraham and all throughout the Jewish leaders and all, throughout history and with the Jewish people. He's the same person. And so Matthew was fulfilling that prophecy in Isaiah by the end of the book there. And then so Jesus' name, 
means God saves. So you can see why um, Mary and Joseph named him Jesus and why the angel asked them to is because it means God saves, which Jesus does throughout his life. He saves us through that. All right, let's keep going. This is going to be the beginning of Matthew 2. We're going to read this part of the story here. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who had been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its, at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When Jesus, or when, I'm sorry, when King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all of Jerusalem was with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it had been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. So these, these um, wise men came from, came from the east to see King Herod. And they said, hey, we heard that there was this king that was born. And he gets kind of upset. And he goes, what king? And so he had his, his priests and his people who were educated in the Old Testament law. What king is he talking about? And they learned that this, this new king was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So they connected... This, the, the wise men's story about they found they're supposed to look for a king with where the king was born, and they kind of pinpointed in Bethlehem where Jesus was born. So let's talk about, oh, let's keep going. Sorry, we'll keep reading the rest of this section. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And we, when you have found him, bring me word so I may also go and pay him homage, which is not what he really wanted to do. When they had heard the king, they sent out, and there, ahead of them, went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, and his mo- his, Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. So they knew that Herod didn't have uh, good intentions, and so they decided to go a different way. So this is fascinating. I found some really cool information about the wise men. So another word for the wise men is magi, which we where we get the word magic. So they were magicians, some would say. Um, another word is they could be astrologers because they studied the stars. And astrology back then in Jesus' day was more of a science. It wasn't like the the fortune telling that it is today, but it, it did have some types of science background because they were studying the stars and the planets and their alignment to see and look for signs of what happens in the future. So they weren't kings, like some of the, like we three kings, um, they weren't kings, they were, they were scientists or, or like or, um, astrologers basically. So we don't know when they showed up in Jesus' story. It, we, we know, we can, we can assume that Jesus uh, that Herod later on, you know, he, he, he tries to kill all the babies that are two and under later on in the story. So we can assume that Jesus was younger than two. We don't know for sure. We, but sometime later after Jesus' birth, the, the wise men showed up. And it could have been the day of, like, like you see in all the pictures where the wise men are there giving the baby gifts. It could have been. I, I don't think it's that accurate because I don't know of astrology being that accurate. I don't think my, my Leo has ever been accurate to what I, I really am. But um, we also don't know how many wise men showed up. We assume that there's three because there's three gifts. And usually people don't just show up for a baby shower without a gift. 
So we can assume that it was three, but we don't know for sure. We, there could have been, in some traditions, I think in the Greek Orthodox Church, there's 12 wise men. Um, so it could have been a whole bunch of them. A whole group of them came from Persia to, to see Jesus. We don't know. And it's not important. That's the point. If it was important, Matthew would have put a number because he did that with the genealogy. The point is that these kings, or these, I'm sorry, I messed myself up. They're not kings. The, the, these three wise men showed up and they, um, they gave gifts to Jesus. Now let's talk about the gifts because this is super interesting. So he gave gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So these three gifts were typically used for certain purposes. Gold was given to kings. Frankincense was used in religious ceremonies as, um, and they still use it in some religious ceremonies today, but it's, it's something that we, we sacrifice and honor to God. And myrrh was used in burials as an embalmer. So Matthew is saying that Jesus is king, that he's God, and he's human. All three at the same time, because he got three gifts. Now, did Jesus actually receive these gifts when he was a two-year-old? I don't know. Um, but the point that Matthew's trying to make is that this is who Jesus is. He's a king, he's God, and he's human because he's going to die. So it's showing what's going to happen with, with Jesus later on in Matthew's gospel. Now, this is super cool. So there's this, there's this king for that was, he was a general of, um, of Alexander the Great that became a king after his death named Seleucus the Victorious. And in 200 years before Jesus' birth, he offered the same gifts, frankincense, gold, and myrrh, at the temple to Apollo. Now, Greek mythology, Apollo is the god of the sun and also is the god of prophecy. And this would have been known to Matthew's audience. So Greek thought was still very prevalent. That the Romans were in charge, but they followed the Greek gods just like, just like the Greeks did before them. And this would have been known in their culture. It would have been part of the, the dialogue. So Matthew may have been using these gifts intentionally to connect Jesus to Apollo. See the connection there? It's very possible that that's what he was doing. We don't know for sure. Jesus, it's, this could have been very literal, and Jesus could have just received these three gifts when he was two, and, and the wise men could have left, and there could have been three of them. We don't know. But it's interesting that there's a lot of connections to other things, and I don't think Matthew did that on accident, because everything else in his gospel has a connection to any, everything else. So, the point of this story is, is we need to remind ourselves is not to tell how Jesus was born because that would be a very boring story. It's a story about why Jesus was born. And I think it's important to remember that so it doesn't mess with our brain because if we grew up hearing these stories in Sunday school and Charlie Brown and we're like, wait a minute, but I remember Linus saying that Jesus was born in a manger, but that's not necessarily important. What's important is why Jesus was born in a manger. So let's keep moving. Let's read through Matthew 22, uh, 13 through 15. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Again, Joseph is dreaming again. And said, get up and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, does anybody have any ideas about which Old Testament character this connects to? Any ideas? Moses. Moses went to Egypt. Moses, Moses was a part of a genocide of children at that time. 
and he survived because his mother saved him. It's all connected. So um, Moses and Jesus and Matthew is again showing us how Jesus is the one they're looking for because he's so connected to the Old Testament. Jesus and Moses have a lot in common. They, um, the king that was alive at the time created infant side to protect his throne. Um, they both were rescued by their mothers. They fled. Moses fled from Egypt eventually, but uh, Jesus went to Egypt to escape genocide. And then both people freed their people. Moses did literally. He freed his people from slavery. Jesus did figuratively. He, fr- he freed us from sin and death. So there's, and, this, and Matthew's not the only one to make this comparison. And I think it's in Hebrews, there's a lot of comparisons between Moses and Jesus as well. And that's intentional. It's showing that Jesus is a new Moses. He's a new savior who's going to come and save his people. Matthew's doing this on purpose. So did Jesus escape a genocide in Israel? Don't know. Also, it's not important. What's important is that Jesus is connected to Moses and his audience would have known that and would have been another thing on his resume of like, oh, so he is the Messiah because he's so connected to Moses. His story resembles Moses' story. So it could have happened, yeah. Joseph could have had a dream and they could have taken his family to to Egypt to escape uh, King Herod. Yeah, absolutely could have happened. But it doesn't matter. It's cool that if it it happened. It's also cool if it didn't happen because it's, it's, it's telling more about how Jesus is the Messiah. Does that make sense? Have I lost anybody yet? Is anybody frustrated? <laughs> Am I destroying Christmas for anyone? <laughs> I should have worn a Grinch hat or something. Okay, let's keep going. We're almost done. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archaeus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in another dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. So Joseph takes his family from Egypt after it's safe and doesn't go back to Bethlehem, but instead goes to um, Nazareth. Sorry. And that's where Jesus grows up, and that's where the story picks up and continues from there. Um, but this is the end of the birth narrative because uh, after that, Jesus grows up and becomes a 12-year-old, and we don't hear about anything else. So another, another dream from Joseph, another two dreams. So in total, he's had four dreams from angels about where to go. Again, connected to Joseph of the Old Testament. And when they, when they left, they, um, they didn't go back. They went to, to Nazareth because this is another Old Testament prophecy. Now, we do have more evidence that Jesus historically grew up in Nazareth because there's other verses that represent that, the other, that connect that in other Gospels as well. But I think Matthew is also trying to prove another point because his, some of, some of the, the references that Matthew uses from the Old Testament aren't necessarily connected to the Messiah. Sometimes he does it to just connect, like take a red string and connect it back to the Old Testament. So there's all these stories, there's all this connection, and if we're looking at Matthew... Um, like if we go into Matthew's house and we see a bunch of pictures on the wall, we're going to see a lot of, of Old Testament references. So a lot of ancestors. So we've got Moses up there. It's actually Charlton Heston, but it's a good reference. So we've got Charlton Heston up there. We've got Joseph in his coats. And we've got, Matthew, or we've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So 
all of these references are connected to, to the Old Testament and Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience who would know the Old Testament very well. And he's saying, look at all these people, they're all related to Jesus. Maybe not literally, but Jesus was Jewish, so he had some Jewish history in him. But he's saying all these people connect to Jesus because they are, these are the important figures in Jewish history. Jesus is the same. He's an important figure in Jewish history. He's the guy that we're looking for. So he's connecting his, his, the Old Testament to his gospel to prove Jesus' Jesus's Jewishness and that they're the one he's waiting for. But he also, like we talked about earlier, he subverts some of that messianic expectation by having some of the cultural norms flipped to show that sometimes what looks unrighteous is actually righteous. So if we look at this story and try to make it somewhat modern day, we, let's, let's look at, at Moses's, or, sorry, look, let's look at Matthew's narrative and see what we have. We have immigrants fleeing their country because of persecution. We have unwed mothers. We have tyrant kings who are seeking out just revenge for, for people that are trying to usurp their throne. We have genocide and we have astrology. And we have outsiders. We have people who are not Jewish that are part of the story, especially the women that are in the genealogy. Lots of things that are not Jewish that are included in the story as well. Very interesting. So I wanted to wrap up with another verse from Matthew. So the way that Matthew has, and this is more like just general Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, but it's written to be like, like a bookend. So the middle of the book stops and then continues like in reverse order of the beginning of the book. So there's, it's, there's all like, it's kind of parallel to each other. But the middle of the book, which is chapter 13, this, this is the, the key of Matthew's gospel. This is the parable that Jesus spoke. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. And then the, when they, they went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? The master answered, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Then you, do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No, and for in gathering the weeds, you would also uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So this seems like a random parable that isn't connected to this at all, but it's, it's actually connected in a big way. It's, it's talking about what is righteous and what is unrighteous has been put together. And what is good for God is good for everybody, all people. So the wheat and the, and the, the weeds are us, all mixed up together. And we're not trying to separate the good from the bad. Just like we're not trying to separate an unwed mother from her husband. We're not trying to separate a family escaping genocide to another country. We're trying to keep everybody together. So it's, um, this, this is like the, the pinpoint of, of, God, of Matthew's gospel where he's saying the, the good and the bad go together and we're subverting those expectations of what could work together. Does that make sense? Am I still with you? It's a bit of a stretch, but it all makes sense when you read the whole gospel together. This is the whole theme that he's talking about, is that good and bad all go together until the very end. So, um, where will we find the unrighteous? How will we find what is unrighteous and, and connect it to what is righteous? And how will it be righteous to us? And how will Emmanuel, God with us, be God for everybody? 
So in Matthew's story, we're seeing a lot of, of interesting themes, a lot of Old Testament references. We're also seeing this theme of God is going to be with us. He's going to stay with us. And maybe not in ways that we expect. These messianic expectations have kind of been flipped in some ways. So how is God going to be with us in different ways that we don't expect? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for everyone who could come today. We are grateful for um, the time we had with family at Thanksgiving, and we're grateful for the Advent season that's upon us, that we can um, wait expectantly for you to arrive. Thank you so much for, um, for our community and for our friends and for our family, and we're um, looking forward to celebrating you this season. Amen. Thanks for coming, everyone. Have a great week.